Hello and welcome to Marketing Week Explores. I'm Molly Fleming, a reporter from Marketing Week, and this week we'll be discussing the investigation into Unilever and Kraft Heinz Pornhub advertising, and debate whether it was a brand-damaging mistake or just good marketing. Plus, Acting Features Editor Charlotte Rogers will be discussing the future of Net Promoter Score. But first off, Charlotte and I are joined by senior reporter at Marketing Week, Ellen Hammett, to discuss the news that Unilever and Kraft Heinz have been advertising on Pornhub. This week, the Sunday Times reported that Unilever's Dollar Shave Club and Kraft Heinz Devour have been using the porn site and pointed out that the porn hub can contain content including underage girls. So, is this a terrible lapse in moral judgment or just effective consumer targeting? Charlotte, Ellen, who wants to go first? Um, well, first of all, if we say Dollar, Dollar Shave Club, of course, has said there was a strategic reason why they went there. And I believe the, the quote was, we're very much about having guys' backs. We like to think we're looking out for guys. It's no secret that guys go there. We turn up where guys are going to be. So guys, 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 blah, blah, blah. So yes, you're going to reach a lot of eyeballs. I guess the issue is how can you be sure that your ad, your video, in whatever form it is, isn't going to appear next to uh, inappropriate content anywhere else on the site? Um, that, you know, that might be something that's either bad taste on the cusp completely um that goes against your brand and brand message or even you know even worse something that's illegal um because no porn site can be a hundred percent um verified and brand safe no matter what they claim yeah it's worth saying in the sunday times investigation um they did note that there was content on there that featured like under 18s or supposed under 18s and Pornhub says it bans content showing under 18s and removes it swiftly. But when the Sunday Times flagged those videos, they didn't. They remained on the site within 24 hours and when the article went live. I think it is an example of what it's like and the kind of tensions that you have when you acquire a company like a Dollar Shave Club and you're mm. a Unilever. So you think this is a great strategic move. We're going to get this D2C brand. We're going to open up a new market. Um, but then Unilever said, well, they were operationally Dependent. But if you're Unilever, you just can't do that because mm. you can't have a brand that is taking risks all sort of on your behalf. And I think this is the problem of the tension of the two cultures of startup world and big corporate is that, you know, Dollar Shave Club came into that, the umbrella of Unilever. And sometimes that means you have to let things go that you might have done um, if you weren't owned by a big blue chip like Unilever. And, you know, you know, you can't really be operationally independent in that way. And maybe you shouldn't have taken the money if you wanted to do something like this. And Unilever can claim that it had no idea and it can try and distance itself as much as it wants from um, the whole instance. But Dollar Shave Club is now, like you say, a Unilever-owned brand. And anything that Dollar Shave Club does, whether that's good, bad, questionable, Unilever's going to feel the impact of that. Exactly that. I just think um, it's a clash of two cultures and they should have mm. tried to iron that out and think about that really like at the beginning when they acquired the business because this is maybe a risk too far for Unilever. And for all that they're all their unstereotyping that they're doing and you know moves to that mm. Unilever's doing to move away from stereotypical advertising. When I looked at the the creative of the Dollar Shave Club on Pornhub, it just it was a line that says, if you use our bathroom products, you won't have to visit this site as much. 
which is basically saying you'll be more attractive slash luckier if you shave or smell nice. So can you imagine if Venus was telling women, you know, you're going to be more attractive if you shave your legs and you're smooth. So it just it just feels like, again, that boring stereotypical advertising, which doesn't align with the overall, um, with Unilever's overall strategy to do better advertising. And it makes it feel inauthentic, right? Like yeah. it's like, oh, to the women or to the wider public we're showing these diverse future-facing ads but on Pornhub where it's a bit more secret we're gonna or arguably not that secret it could have been so many people watch it we're happy to stick to what works and it's just about effectiveness rather than genuinely trying to do good yeah and also maybe maybe these people just like watching porn I <laughs> just they don't need to you know buy your product and and be happy I like just leave them be I think it's very odd targeting there's almost like a shaming angle to be like, well, if you were more attractive, you wouldn't be here. Yeah. So you said, Ellen, and it's that kind of thing of, do is that really the tone you want to take with your consumers? Um, surely you should be, you know, if this is what they want to do in their life, cool. But like, do you have a place there, really? I'm not sure that you do. It's trying to tap into that kind of humour, isn't it? Like the kind of lads, 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 yeah. bit of banter humour <laughs> that just feels, well, arguably very un-Unilever. Um, or at least the public-facing leader lever, and just quite old-fashioned. It does feel very last lads, lads. And I had a look on the Dollar Shave Club website, and it's 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 got that tone sort of mm. across it, and it's all about the handsome man and and just the betterment and you know man man man, which I thought we were trying to move away from. Yeah, you look at like Harry's or Gillette, like the way they've moved forward is definitely the way you want to be taking it. Why unless Unilever are making or Dollar Shave Club are making a strategic choice to pick up the people who feel rejected. Mm. Or maybe we're extrapolating beyond this one for one half hour. I I would just love to know how much ROI these brands make from from advertising on porn sites. Mm. I wonder if anywhere um there's a breakdown. I'm sure they've all got breakdowns but but not for public eyes. So I um, was listening to a talk from the CEO of Gillette that I wrote a story about, and he said one of the things that increased their, you know, their purchase sales was the fact that women buy the majority of razors because they obviously buy it for like their sons or their husbands or whatever, which is you know is an issue in and of itself. All themselves because they're cheaper and um, better true. razors. <laughs> Do you think, as female consumers, this would alienate you? Uh, it would me. I think it's very gendered. I think it's saying that our product is for men. Um, and I also just think I don't like the tone. So to me, that doesn't appeal. Mm. I agree. And I use um, razors that are marketed at men just yes, because they're, like I said, cheaper and better. So I just think this is making all those sweeping assumptions that, you know, this is your target audience when, in fact, what they have done, like you said, is they've alienated a much wider mm. audience. So do you think that this is going to blow over? Do you think Unilever has some work to do? Or is it just a blip? I think uh, all of those. Um, I think Unilever has some work to do to make sure that its overall strategy and um, and where it wants to to be um, is, you know, felt in all parts of its business. And no matter how big or small the brand um that it owns is mm. so I guess there's some alignment to be done there it's whether that these D2C brands like Dollar Shave Club you know want to be told what to do and then sort of lose their I'm going to say this in inverted commas lose their edge and their mm. independence um, for the sake of you know being part of something much bigger I'm not sure yeah I think it's the whole thing about I think it is a blip for Unilever but I do think they need to think 
you know, going forward, if they were to acquire any DTC brands, you know, how are you going to make sure that the two cultures match? Because it's one thing saying this is such a hot brand, we need it in our portfolio. It's another thing understanding, is it a good fit for you? Um, And I think to brands like Dollar Shave Club, you need to work out first, segment your audience, work out who's actually buying your product and don't be so gendered if you find out it's actually a lot of women. And also work out whether it is a good fit to be bought by a, a corporate because if they're going to clip your wings and that's a problem for you, then don't do it. Yeah. Um, don't chase the money. I think that would be a similar thing if we saw, say, um, AB InBev by BrewDog. Mm. I think you'd see a very similar similar clash. Do you think this shows them being inauthentic? Yeah, I think, I mean, a brand like Kraft Heinz, they weren't squeamish about it, right? They were very intentional. This is what we're doing. This is the point we wanted to be here. So they made a conscious choice and they were explicit about it. I think for Unilever, it doesn't call into question their authenticity from my perspective, but I think it calls into question their strategy with acquisitions. I think it calls into question whether operational independence really can be a thing if you set your brand up, the master brand, to have such a purpose. Um, If you're not making sure that's in every part of your business, then that is an issue. So I think they are an authentic company and they're trying, but I think they need to get better at onboarding. What do you think other brands can learn from this experience? When you bring a brand on board, make sure that you understand each of them. And if you think it's not going to work long term, don't do it. Even if it looks fashionable and like a great move, it might bring problems later down the line. Now, Charlotte, you've been writing a series on marketing effectiveness, specifically the vast and varied world of measurements. Today, we're going to hone in on one, NPS. But first off, for those who are new to it, what is NPS and why do some brands find it so useful? So NPS was devised in 2003 by Fred Reicheld, who is a partner at the consultancy Bain and Company. And NPS measures how likely consumers are to recommend a brand to their friends or family. So you have kind of, um, you're grouped into different feelings about a brand according to a score. So scores of nine to 10 signify that you are a loyal fan or a promoter. If you score seven to eight, you are deemed as passive, passively satisfied. And then if your score is six or less, you are unhappy and you're a detractor. The score is then calculated by subtracting the percentage of detractors from the percentage of promoters. Brands like M&S use NPS to measure customer sentiment at a total business level, at a store level and across their online business. And they link it to long-term customer behaviour. Then they use the verbatims, which is the free text, to get an in-depth measure of customer sentiment. Um, For a brand like Habito, which is a scale-up online mortgage broker, they measure uh, customer sentiment after a person's first interacted with the brand and when they've taken out a mortgage submission. The NPS score is then published internally every Friday as part of a weekly roll-up alongside their trust pilot score. One significant critic is Tom Goodwin, who is Executive Vice President of Innovation at the media agency Zenith. He says that NPS is symptomatic of the current era of marketing and the feeling that unless you have a number attached to your marketing, people don't understand how to feel about it. His first problem with NPS is the sampling. So he says that typically brands send out surveys and the people who interact with the surveys are either extremely unhappy or extremely happy. You don't get the people in between. Um, He also takes issue with the questions being asked. So he suggests they lack empathy. So, for example, um, you know, you could be asked, am I going to um, recommend my browser? Like no one actually talks to their friends about recommending browsers. That's just not how real people interact. So he says that the questions fail to understand how normal people talk to their friends. Um, And he crucially also says that the scores fail to discover why you feel a certain way and that context really matters. 
So for this reason, he believes that a movement is building against MPS. I think there is an acknowledgement on smart people that this is going to take waste of time. Um, I don't think that's started to affect companies yet um, because I think they're so desperate to have KPIs which they can track that in order for this to go away, something else would have to replace it. And I don't think there's anything else out there. You actually spoke to the creator of MPS. Um, I'm curious, given the debate, does he think MPS is used correctly? Yeah, I did. I spoke to Fred Reichelt and he says that over 16 years since he invented MPS, he has seen it being used with extraordinary creativity and also being terribly misused. So he believes that um, that actually one of the, you know, one of his problems with the use of MPS is the way that it's linked to bonus remuneration. Um, and he says when you do this for internal bonuses, you're just asking for trouble. So he says that too many com- companies obsess about the aggregate score, he says, as if it were magic. And they link it to bonuses and make decisions based on that when they don't even know how they're properly measuring NPS. And if you think about this in a store, if people are asking you, how do you feel about us? Like, would you recommend us? You can really upset the customer experience. Um, and it leads to what he calls pleading, gaming, manipulating, selective sampling. Um, and the more you, he says, the more you tie it to frontline incentives, the less useful it becomes because it distorts the truth. People are looking to get an answer so they can get a bonus. Mm-hmm. So I guess lastly, what is the future of NPS? Well, Fred Reichel, he talks about businesses having just scratched the surface with NPS and that actually you should be thinking about how you can link it to big data and to really in-depth understanding customer behaviour. So he talks about rather than obsessing about the score, marketers and CEOs, CMOs, CCOs, they should be digging into the verbatim comments and pairing those with reported behaviours, retention, repurchase behaviour, usage rates, referral rates, share of wallet, online commentary and ratings to get a holistic picture. If you think about Net Promoter, we've just scratched the surface in terms of the way that it's been automated and and how it's linked to big data, actual behaviors, the best way to use it. So the most important thing, given that there's so much innovation yet to happen, is to make sure everyone right down to the front line understands the purpose, the objective. We're just trying to help everyone have a way of understanding better how well they're enriching the lives they touch. And if that's the goal, I don't need to link it to a bonus. I'm curious, we've heard a lot about what other people think about MPS, what do you think? I think it should be handled with care. So I can understand how it's really attractive to have a number that says customers love you. But I think there's also an issue around how you ask the question. So if you say to someone, how do you feel about our brand? Do you like our brand? And then immediately you ask them, would you recommend our brand? People usually say yes, because it's like a halo effect of positivity. But whether they actually recommend the brand is a different story. So I think it's a nice starting point, but you need to look at many other measures of success to work out whether people really are interacting with your brand and whether they do really love it. We are keen to hear your opinions about the podcast, so please do tweet us at Marketing Week Ed. And as ever, if you want to read the content we've been discussing or get more of the best marketing news and insight, go to our website, marketingweek.com. You can also subscribe on Spotify and SoundCloud to this podcast and our other podcast, Marketing Week Meeks. That just leaves me to thank Ellen and Charlotte and you for listening.